Good morning. Crime fuels an upset in the race for mayor of Chicago. I've called Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis uh, to congratulate them on their victories in advancing uh, to the runoffs. Noam Chomsky offers a politician a rare endorsement, the allure of Imran Khan, protesting U.S. support of Saudi Arabia's war against Yemen. And we hear from the namesake, Barbara Hanshu, on the police spying agreement bearing her name. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienza with the news for Wednesday morning, March 1st, 2023. Lori Lightfoot, the first black woman and first openly gay person to lead Chicago, was denied a second term on Tuesday. Paul Vallis, a former school's chief, and Brandon Johnson, a county commissioner, will meet in an April runoff to be the next mayor of the nation's third largest city. Lightfoot, who led the city through the COVID pandemic, conceded on Tuesday night. Let me just uh, do this. So thank you and and thank everyone so much. Um, I feel a lot of love in this room as I've felt every step of the way on this journey. Uh, I've called Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis uh, to congratulate them on their victories in advancing uh, to the runoffs. We were fierce competitors in these last few months, um, but I will be rooting and praying for our next mayor to deliver uh, for the people of the city for years to come. Thank you. Lightfoot is the first elected Chicago mayor to lose a re-election bid since 1983 when Jane Byrne, the city's first female mayor, lost her Democratic primary. And a conservative Supreme Court majority seems ready to reject President Joe Biden's order for giving billions of dollars in student loans. In three hours of arguments, Chief Justice John Roberts questioned the administration's authority to cancel federal loans. Loan payments on hold during the coronavirus pandemic three years ago are supposed to resume by this summer. The program is estimated to cost $400 billion over 30 years. A decision is expected by late June. And the Kremlin is blaming Ukraine for attacks by swarms of drones, including one that hit within 60 miles of Moscow. Officials say the drones caused no injuries or significant damage, but the attacks raised new questions about Russia's ability to defend its borders, even as Russian troops are fighting in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Russian Defense Ministry said it was conducting air defense drills in western Russia. And noted United States intellectual Noam Chomsky is a prolific author, his books often chronicling the excesses of America's empire. He's not known for endorsing many candidates for office, although Chomsky made an exception this week when he claimed he'd vote for Pakistan's ousted prime minister, Imran Khan. If Imran Khan were running, it would take time to vote for him, but I don't know of any other political figure in Pakistan seems to be worth devoting much political energy and effort. My general impression is he was making an effort to do some fairly decent things. There were possible criticisms. Uh, I don't think anything happened that justified his expulsion from the political system. It's also not clear who interviewed Chomsky and when it took place, although the name Wahab K. Khan appears on the bottom left of the screen. The clip was part of a longer interview where Chomsky claims there's no real evidence the Pakistani government engineered a coup against Khan.
Imran Khan, once a champion cricket captain, was the Prime Minister of Pakistan until he was ousted through a no-confidence motion in the National Assembly in April 2022. In November, he survived an assassination attempt during a campaign rally. He was shot in the foot during a melee. Professor of Religion and World Politics at the University of Lahore in Pakistan, Junaid Ahmad, tells the news Chomsky is reflecting the will of most people in Pakistan. What Chomsky is expressing is basically the very obvious sentiment of the vast majority of the population of the country. And I think Chomsky is sensible and brilliant enough to know that Pakistan whether under quote-unquote civilian rule or military rule, has always been in an invisible state. Because of the enormous levels of corruption, it always competes with Nigeria as the most corrupt countries in the world. Chomsky and other sensible people can clearly see the difference of a, in a person like Imran Khan in relation to the other political parties, which are basically family dynasties, and which happen to be the richest families in the country as well. So politics for all the rest of the politicians and political parties in this country, in Pakistan, other countries as well, I guess, is about making money. So Imran Khan is just so vastly different in terms of what his objectives are and what he wants to achieve. It makes perfect sense. He didn't need to get himself into this mess of politics <laughs> and the dirty politics of Pakistan. I mean, you know, he led the cricket team to the World Cup, a global icon, you know, and this and that, and and a great philanthropist. He founded the first uh, cancer hospital, free cancer hospital in, uh, in all of Asia. And he didn't need all of this, but I think that he came to the recognition to fundamentally transform society, just this uh, kind of philanthropic or charitable work is not going to be sufficient, that he has to actually transform it politically, the system, in order to deliver more justice to a society that's, that's been gross, the disparities and the inequalities and the almost still semi-feudal type of society that Pakistan is. Ahmad adds that Khan's threat to the conservative ruling families of Pakistan comes from his charisma and willingness to stand up to the United States. He's a geopolitical actor like all of our modern actors. He's very knowledgeable. And however, the problem with Khan remains the same. It's that every single power center, domestically and internationally, at least in, in the Western world, completely against him. The past few months, we the big transition was the new chief of army staff and people familiar with Pakistan's history know that the military and the chief of army staff these guys are really the most powerful people in the country and so unfortunately is a flurry of activity of so-called security cooperation agreements with the, with Washington both the military as well as their the new puppet regime that's in power and so what is frightening for many Pakistanis, they're becoming very anxious about, is the type of return to almost not even 2001, in which war and terror years, in which there was clearly tensions between the two countries, but going back all the way to the Cold War days. And of course, the 1980s, the joint operation against the commies in Afghanistan. And Imran Khan is certainly an impediment for this. Imran Khan's main thing is domestically against 
corruption and a welfare state, social justice, and internationally, an independent foreign policy. And he keeps now saying that, look, India is part of your quad alliance, and India is a close ally, yet it still refuses to take dictation from you, uh, from the United States, with regards to, say, the Russia, the trade with Russia. And so Khan's main thing is that, look, we will be friends in peace with the United States, but we can't be friends in, when you want to have a military solution to every single problem that emerges. This is a Khan's main message. Junaid Ahmad is professor of religion and world politics at the University of Lahore in Pakistan. In more news from the Asian continent, the United Nations has called for $4.3 billion in humanitarian aid for Yemen. March 25th marks eight years since a devastating war broke out pitting the poor mountainous country's rebel government against U.S.-backed Saudi Arabia. According to the advocacy webpage, every 75 seconds, more than 68,000 children have died in Yemen during the war. On Tuesday, March 1st, protests on behalf of Yemen are being held across the United States. In New York City, a rally is planned for the offices of House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries at 55 Hanson Place, Suite 603, in Brooklyn at 5 p.m. The CEO of Action Corps, a group supporting the demonstrations, is Isaac Evans France. So over 70 organizations across the United States are calling for this day of Yemen war protests tomorrow, Wednesday, March 1st, and protests are planned in over 10 cities across the country. March marks the eighth year of the Saudi-led U.S.-backed war on Yemen. You can learn more about the war and what we're doing to stop it at actioncorps.org. That's A-C-T-I-O-N-C-O-R-P-S.org. The Ukraine war anniversary is not the only current war anniversary. We have been seeing this war going on in Yemen the Saudi-led war for over, well, it will be eight years uh, on March 25th. The war in Yemen has killed hundreds of thousands of people and wrecked havoc on the country. In part, of, in part, that's because of the United States' enabling role. The United States has, continues to provide logistical support, military support, servicing of Saudi fight aircraft, that has the capacity of dropping bombs on Yemen and has done just that for years up until April of last year when a ceasefire truce began. We are concerned in the coalition of over 100 organizations that have signed on to, national organizations have signed on to this, letters to Congress calling for passage of a Yemen war powers resolution that Senator Sanders in the Senate introduced the last summer. We are calling for for introduction of a new Yemen War Powers Resolution in this new Congress. What makes for the difference in public and press and media reaction to the anniversary to very, these two wars right now that are going on? I mean, you have one, Ukraine's totally dominating the news cycle, and you really hear very little about what's happening in Yemen. There are three reasons that come to my mind. Number one, in the case of Ukraine, the United States has an adversarial relationship with Russia and the U.S. government, I should say, has that adversarial relationship and has for years, whereas the United States has had decades-long alliance with Saudi Arabia and has been willing to essentially write Saudi Arabia a blank check. 
where Saudi Arabia is committing heinous illegal war crimes on its neighbor, bombing, blockading, starving to death hundreds of thousands of people with U.S. complicity. In some ways, there are certainly parallels to the sort of violence that Putin has and Russia has waged in on the Ukrainian people. Upholding that relationship with Saudi Arabia, what seems to be all human costs. The war in on Yemen has been going on for now eight years. Our attention for this is sometimes is, is short in the United States, where the war in Ukraine has just been one year. It's hard to sustain people's attention, especially when it comes to humanitarian crisis and a war. Ukraine is a country that's majority white, and Yemen is a country that is Arab. There is a degree of racism that's present in U.S. foreign policy that goes unchallenged and that we need to look at. What about the recent peace talks? There has been de facto ceasefire truce that's been going on for over 10 months now. So there have been no airstrikes by Saudi Arabia on Yemen in over 10 months, which is a really important step forward. But the issue is airstrikes could resume at any point. Since Biden took office, we saw some of the most intense airstrikes that happened on Yemen, and that was done with U.S. complicity. Our concern is that that might restart. Isaac Evans-France is Director of Action Corps, supporting rallies across the U.S. in support of Yemen. Demonstrators are calling for an end to U.S. military support for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which is also a belligerent in the war. In New York City, a rally is planned for the offices of House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries at 55 Hanson Place, Suite 603 in Brooklyn at 5 p.m. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, another war-torn nation facing a humanitarian crisis. A report from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, says years of a disjointed American presence and lack of objectives contributed to the disastrous withdrawal of U.S. forces and collapse of the Afghan government in the summer of 2021. During the chaotic withdrawal, a suicide bombing at Hamid Karzai International Airport killed 11 Marines and two service members and about 70 Afghans. Within days of the bombing, the Taliban, who had been fighting U.S. troops since they were ousted in 2001, had swept back into power and began reestablishing a religious government, forcing women out of schools and jobs. Junaid Ahmad, who is the professor of religion and world politics at the University of Lahore in Pakistan, says this is a new Taliban in a government already rent by internal divisions. That's the key. That's the key that uh, we have to understand that this Taliban uh, you know, movement now, it, it is not a monolith. There are so many different <laughs> views and opinions and, and, and there, are, there are elements within it that really want to kind of obtain that international legitimacy from other governments, etc. Then there are others that you know, maybe don't care as much <laughs> about that or not. And of course, uh, the, uh, we start from what you said earlier. I mean, it's just been such a uh, egregious scandal the way that uh, their their the money uh, that that that's their own Afghan reserves money has been kept from them, and uh, despite the uh, massive humanitarian catastrophe uh, that the winter brought to Afghanistan, and so continues. Junaid Ahmad, Professor of Religion and World Politics at the University of Lahore in Pakistan. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. 
In local news, last week, New York City Mayor Eric Adams appointed the first Muslim-American civilian to the Handshoe Committee, a police spying oversight board made up by NYPD brass and one civilian. The committee was formed after two federal lawsuits alleged improper investigations into the Muslim community following the 9-11 attacks. The committee is the outgrowth of a lawsuit brought against the city in the 1970s by lawyers and activists who were targeted by the COPS Notorious Bureau of Special Services, or BOSS, the intelligence division of the NYPD, that focused police scrutiny on non-political activists and lawyers. The agreement that arose from the lawsuit by the mid-1980s was known as the Hanshu Agreement. It was named after a young attorney, Barbara Hanshu. After 9-11, as government spying engulfed Muslims in New York, Hanshu wanted her name removed, but a judge said no way. The agreement wouldn't be the same without her. Barbara Hanshu spoke with the news in an exclusive interview conducted on Tuesday. Mine was a personal event. I had been the lawyer for the Young Lords Party. And as such, I was very involved with things that were happening, for instance, the takeover of the church with the guns and things like that. And it was very obvious to me that I was being watched. I also was involved with one of the people in the Young Lords, and I ended up marrying Bobby Lemus. And I'm sure that was another reason I and he were both targeted. And one of the ways that I was certain that I was a target, I was prepared. I ran my law office out of home. And I was on my home phone, which was my only phone in those days, working with a witness and preparing her for court. I put her on in court went through the direct examination, and then the district attorney got up, and his first question was a very pointed question that could only have been asked if he was aware of my conversation with her. She was asked specifically um, how much of the various um, substances had been put into the so-called um, bomb that these two young men were supposed to have in the back seat of their car. So at that point, I did the only thing I knew how to do. I was a baby lawyer, and I just yelled, objection, move for a mistrial. And it turned out probably six, seven years later, the federal courts did reverse the conviction based on the fact that there had been surveillance of my phone because the district attorney would not answer my question to him, and then the judge posed the question, has there been any surveillance by your office? And he said no, and it may have been that there was surveillance by another office, maybe the federal government. Mm -hmm. That was one of the reasons that my affidavit went in. Just by chance, happenstance, you got to be the first name on the list of people. They chose me as first. I also had worked on a lawsuit in terms of legal work. They felt it was an honor to bestow upon me. <laughs> For a young lawyer, it's pretty heady. I mean, you're just out of law school, basically. <laughs> it sure was. Stayed that way. <laughs> it turned out that there was widespread 
out of control spying by the uh, NYPD against pretty much everybody. Did we ever learn what the roots of that spying was? Was it uh, just something that was going on in every precinct or was it centralized? It was centralized and they definitely had targets. The targets in more recent days became the Muslims and the mosques. They put informers into the mosques and hoped to get information. Right. And that was a continuation. So with Hanshu, you had this Hanshu board. All of a sudden, there was some sort of oversight going on. There were three agreements that come out of the lawsuit. The first one was probably in the mid-'80s. I think it was 84. And the next settlement was right after, or two years after, 9-11. And at that point, what they did was to take the original settlement and watered it down, claiming that not the activities of 9-11 had to give uh, more leeway to police to conduct surveillance to protect people. I hated that settlement. I really did. I hated the fact that my name was attached to it. And I wrote a letter to the judge. I didn't make a motion because it really would have taken me too much time. And I didn't think it would be successful. I wrote him a letter and I said, could you please remove my name? I don't approve of this settlement. And moreover, I'm living and working in Buffalo. And he sent me back a letter saying, while this isn't a motion, I'm not granting your request. It's going to stay that way. And about three years ago, which was the most recent settlement, the judge permitted statements to be made by people in the community I was one of them, and he said at the end of it, I'm glad I never let you take your name back because it would have sounded very strange for this to be anything but the Hanshu settlement. And that was the settlement with the Muslim cases. I like that settlement much better. What's wrong if the police keep an eye on legal activity? They just want to make sure uh, troublemakers don't get in there. Right now, you and I are conducting a very private conversation you may choose to make it more public that's fine with me you know i give you my consent but they have no right to listen to that conversation we're not talking about anything unlawful we're not talking about anything that would give the police any reason to surveil i was active in the women's rights community It was the days when abortion was illegal. I was speaking all over the country about things like that. I've been active representing children, straight legal work, and I don't think I've been watched as much. But who knows? Your view of this new appointment, uh, Mr. Faridi, do you think that uh, the Hanshu Agreement has done what you thought was necessary? Was it enough? The appointee is magnificent. I understand he's a brilliant young lawyer. And I think he'll do a great job. He's very independent, and he will be one independent voice. And as far as I know, the committee and the newest settlement is doing something. I've not heard many reports of any problems. I know they've brought some cases in for review, but I have not heard any problems. It's making them behave better on the police side. Barbara Hanshu is the namesake of the Hanshu Committee, a watchdog over spying by police in New York City. And that's the news for Wednesday morning, March 1st, 2023. The news is produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. 
from New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.